many of you have been asking about my books. Okay, one person asked about my books. <laughs> and that was the ABC manager. <laughs> how long they're going to sit over there. But uh, as I mentioned last night, I'm going there as soon as we're done here tonight. You may be interested to know that all of the proceeds from my books goes to feed uh, hungry children, uh, namely my own. Uh, so <laughs> that might help. <laughs> well, how would you like to work in a profession where it is your job to stand in front of people and tell them how they ought to behave? All the while knowing you so often fail to live up to the very principles that you preach. How would you like my job? Where almost every week I stand in front of really nice people like you. And I say things like you ought to be kind and tender hearted toward your spouse. Knowing I'm not always kind and tender hearted toward my wife. One time we were having a heated argument, got so angry, I took the cordless phone, I slammed it on the carpet, it bounced back up at the pinnacle of its ascent, it rang. (laughs) So here we are fighting, well, if you had done that, and if you had done that, and ring, Pastor Hafner speaking. (laughs) Inevitably, in moments like that, it's always some parishioner wanting marriage counseling. Don't call your pastor when he's fighting with his wife. It's rude. Don't do that. Uh, I confess so often I just feel woefully inadequate to stand in front of anybody and tell them how to live, knowing all my own junk and darkness and so on. Uh, But tonight I stand here with a lot of confidence because I'm going to teach you how to be a spiritual failure. And this is something that I know a little bit about. Uh, The principles flow out of an Old Testament story that really begins more as a love story. When Jehoram comes to his father, Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah after Israel has split into two kingdoms. And he says to his father, I'm in love. Who are you in love with? I'm in love with. With Athaliah. Have you seen her recently? She is exquisite in her beauty. Oh, no, 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 son. You can't be in love with her. But why not? You know why not? Because that's King Ahab's daughter. And if you were to marry her, that would form an alliance between Israel and Judah. And you know that's not God's will. Oh, but dad, I'm in love. Oh, Jehoram kept pestering his father. Kept after it until finally Jehoshaphat caves in and he gives his blessing to a marriage. It's not long after that. And he receives an invitation from Samaria. King Ahab, come and celebrate this newly formed alliance between our kingdoms. Alliance, Jehoshaphat says. I knew that it was would come to this. Nevertheless, he goes. Up to Israel, even though he knows better. Point number one, want to be a spiritual flunky? Go where you don't belong. That's a great way to start down the pathway of failure. I don't know what your struggle is. If it's gambling, just go with a friend, be with the friend to a casino. Uh, saying, uh, I'm not going to gamble, not this time. 
If it's drinking, just go with a friend to a party where you know they'll be serving alcoholic beverages. If it's visiting pornographic websites, then just fail to put certain proof guards on your computer. Whatever it is, just go there with the idea that I can handle it this time. That's a great way to start. Jehoshaphat knew he had no business going to Samaria, and yet he goes anyway. When he arrives with all of his entourage, he observes the beautiful threshing floor. Now, normally the threshing floor was used at the time of harvest. When they would take, for example, wheat and put it all over the floor and horses would gallop over it. And then when the wind was just right, they'd take these huge trays and they'd throw it up in the air and the wind would carry away the shaft, leaving the kernel. But on this particular evening, no horses, no harvest. Instead, there is a table that looks like one of those posters of a meal in heaven. As far as the eye can see, beautiful, scrumptious food, food that has been already offered to Baal. On the other side of the tables, you have six thrones on the one side, two thrones, one for King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. On the other side, two more thrones, one for King Jehoshaphat and his queen, but in the center. Two very large thrones for the couple of the evening, the guests of honor, Jehoram and his lovely bride, Athaliah. There was drinking and dancing and partying. Everybody's having a great time until finally Ahab corners Jehoshaphat and he starts to flatter him. Oh, Jehoshaphat, you've raised such a fine young man. We're so glad to invite your son to be part of our family. The future looks oh so bright. We're so glad you're here. You're a great leader in Judah. But then Ahab gets to his real agenda. Point number two. Want to be a spiritual flunky? Listen to the devil's flatteries and just entertain the thought of compromise. Because the landscape of spiritual life really is the mind. Just feed the fantasy a little bit. Oh, it's just harmless flirtation. But what would it be like if? Just, just think about it. Entertain the thought of compromise. So Jehoshaphat listens to all of the flattery and then to the real agenda. Jehoshaphat, Ahab says, do you remember the land Ramath Gilead? Yes, the Syrians took over there. Is that right? That's right. Well, what about it? It's my territory. I want it back. Yes. Well, see, I don't have the military strength to pull that off, but I was thinking if you and I were to combine our armies, then we would have enough military power to run over the Syrians and I could get back the land that's rightfully mine in the first place. What do you think? Well, Jehoshaphat listens to this, even though he knows this is not God's will. But he listens, squirming back and forth. Now he stalls for time and says, ah, is, is, there a, is there a prophet 
of the living God that maybe we could ask whether or not this is God's will. Of course, Ahab was ready for that objection. He not only had one prophet, he had 400 prophets on call. The chief of which was Zedekiah. Ahab summons Zedekiah and asks of the prophet who, incidentally, according to Scripture, not only prophesies in the name of Yahweh, but in the name of Baal as well. Whichever God you prefer, how convenient. And Ahab asks him, is it God's will that we should combine our forces and go and reclaim the territory at Ramath Gilead? Zedekiah calls his 400 prophets and together they huddle in the middle of the threshing floor. And I can imagine a conversation in that huddle, something like this. So what are we going to say to the king? And Zedekiah barks, what do you think we're going to say to him? Exactly what he told us to say that God wanted them to go. Now make it look like we're inquiring of God. And so there's this big melodramatic scene described in the Bible. Of how Zedekiah, I love this story, he puts on this big ox head, protruding from it long iron horns. He approaches Ahab and Jehoshaphat, dancing around. He shouts, go and be victorious. You will gore the enemy of God. Go, God is with you. Ahab excitedly looks over to Jehoshaphat. I guess 400 prophets of the living God cannot be wrong. What do you say? But Ahab knows this is not right. He's still squirming. Do you have any other prophets? He wonders. Now it's Ahab who's squirming. Well, yes, there's one more. And? Well, I don't really like that guy very much. (laughs) Why not? Well, Because he's always prophesying against me. Ahab says, that's the one I want to talk to. Very well. Ahab summons the servant who goes to get Micaiah, the prophet of the living God. The servant raps on Micaiah's door. When Micaiah answers, the servant tries to tip him off. This is what's going on. And this is what King Ahab expects you to say to him. Now, don't mess this one up. And Micaiah stands tall in scripture. He says, I will say to the king, whatever God tells me to say to the king. Oh, how the world is hungry for Micaiah's today. People who will not be bought or sold. People who will not compromise. Marches onto the threshing floor, quickly assesses what is going on. He knows this does not please God. He sees Jehoshaphat and he knows Jehoshaphat has no business being in Israel. He sees the drinking and the dancing. He sees Zedekiah and all of the false prophets. He approaches King Ahab, who asks, is it God's will that we should go and combine our armies to Reclaim the territory of Ramath Gilead. Micaiah knows. Ahab knows the answer to this, as does Jehoshaphat. He sees it for the sham that it really is. Sarcastically, he answers, sure. He's playing with the kings now. (laughs) 
Why are you bothering me? You know the answer to this question. So I sense sarcastically, he says, yeah, go, go ahead. And God will give you victory. Let me know how that turns out for you. Send me a postcard, why don't you? And it's like this scene out of a Hollywood blockbuster movie. Because this really incenses Ahab. And he says, you tell me the truth, prophet. To which Mikey Iyer replies, the truth? You can't handle the truth. Here's the truth. You go together into battle and as sure as there is a living God in heaven, you will not return alive. That's the truth. And scripture tells us, Second Chronicles chapter 18, how Zedekiah, the false prophet, watching all of this, gets so angry. Verse 23, then Zedekiah went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the Spirit of the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Ahab is angry as well and commands his uh, secret security there and his servants to come and arrest uh, to, uh, to arrest Micaiah and throw him into solitary confinement. Ahab says, give him nothing to eat but bread and water until I return safely. And I can just imagine Ahab saying, and mark my words, I will return safely. After all of this, can you imagine? Ahab looks over to Jehoshaphat and asks, so will you go? And Jehoshaphat says, my army will be ready to fight in the morning. Point number three. Want to be a spiritual flunky? Go against the clearly revealed will of God. You know, as a pastor on a university campus for a number of years, I've seen a steady stream of young people come through my office, all asking basically the same question. How do I know God's will in my life? Very hot topic on a university campus. In fact, I got an email just yesterday from a kid at Walla Walla, recently graduated and asked that question. How do I know God's will for my life? And often I will say to the students that me personally, it's not the parts of Scripture that I clearly understand. That, that's where I have my hard time. It's not like God's will is some secret that we have to figure out. God's trying to keep from, from us. What I have a problem with is the will of God clearly revealed in Scripture. Because most of Scripture, I clearly understand. It's just sometimes very difficult to pull it off. When God says, judge not, I understand what that means. Or when he says, forgive, I can understand that. Or turn the other cheek. So it's most of God's will is clearly revealed in his word. And often I will say the better question is not, how do I know God's will? But rather, how do I know God, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. That's really the key question. Oh, Jehoshaphat knows this is not God's will. And yet he defiantly disobeys. Shows up the next morning. 
He is dressed in his regal gown, riding in the royal chariot. But when he sees Ahab, he is confused. Why are you dressed like that? He wonders. Oh, Ahab explains. See, I had this idea last night. I think it's a pretty good idea. I think you're going to like it. See, I was thinking if I dressed like this, like a peasant, then we could confuse the enemy. They'll see your royal chariot. And by the way, you look really good in that kingly garment. And they'll come after you. We can outflank them from the south. We can surprise them. And like that, we will enjoy victory. Jehoshaphat went along with the plan because he didn't realize, as Scripture says, that the commander of the Syrian forces had given very strict command to his soldiers. Now, the king of Syria had ordered his chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. In other words, the Syrian soldiers had been instructed, listen, in the event of an Israeli attack, you ignore everybody on the battlefield except the king. You zero in on the king's chariot. That's all you need to worry about. So, when Jehoshaphat came rolling onto the battlefield, all of the Syrian soldiers immediately cued into him. And just like that, before there was any battle going at all, Jehoshaphat found himself in the middle of hundreds, thousands of Syrian soldiers. All of them, bows pulled back, arrows pointed right at his head. He had a 360 degree view of hundreds and thousands of arrows all pointing right at him. Suddenly, Jehoshaphat felt like the star of the Southwest Airline commercial. Need to get away? There's nothing for Jehoshaphat to do. Except in desperation, look up and say, oh, God. I went where I had no business going. I listened to the flattery of King Ahab. I went against your clearly revealed Will, and I am about to die unless you miraculously intervene. I have nowhere else to turn but to you. When the Syrian soldiers heard that prayer, they were confounded. I swear, I heard him praying to Yahweh. We've got the wrong guy. That can't be King Ahab. Not if he's praying like that. Who is that? Then scripture says that someone, verse 33, drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. Here, King Ahab is slinking over in the shadows, apart from all of the action. And one of the Syrian soldiers just shoots an arrow randomly into the sky and it lodges itself in between the armor 
sections of King Ahab. And he starts bleeding and the soldiers prop him up so he has a front row seat to the massacre that is about to unfold before him. And the Israelites were massacred. They were slaughtered on the battlefield that day. And at sunset that night, King Ahab died just as Micaiah, the prophet of the living God, had foretold. What a story, huh? You got to wonder, did he learn his lesson? Or maybe a more relevant question for us tonight is, do we learn a lesson from this story? Well, in the case of King Jehoshaphat, As the story unfolds in the next several chapters, it appears that he really learned something from all of this. I had a couple of chapters, chapter 20. We read that the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Meuites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you. We must prepare to fight, they say. But this time, Jehoshaphat says, time out, hold everything before we go willy nilly into battle like we did last time. We are going to stop and pray and seek the will of God with the intent to follow it. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Rather than scheming up some crazy military battle plan like to go in dressed as a peasant or whatever, Jehoshaphat says, we are going to invest ourselves in the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting and worship. And we will wait for the answer from God. Jehaziel, a prophet, comes with this answer. Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all of you who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. And then this key text in Scripture. I think this is one of the most important spiritual principles in all of the word of God. So important for a life with God. It says, do not be afraid, for the battle is not yours, but God's. I'll tell you what, friend, when you start learning this principle, you start growing real deep with God. The battle is not yours, but God's. So Jehoshaphat prepares his army to do battle. But they prepare in the most unusual way by engaging in the spiritual disciplines, again, of fasting and corporate worship. And in fact, when they go into battle, they are still engaged in the spiritual discipline of corporate community worship together. 
And rather than pulling their swords and pulling back their bows and pointing their arrows or any of this, as they're marching toward the bluff and the battlefield below, they are all singing hymns together. They are singing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. They are rejoicing because they are about to go into battle, but not to worry. The battle is not theirs to fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. And when they get to the bluff and overlook the valley below, they cannot believe their eyes. The enemy has turned on itself and they are fighting each other. And the Israelites just watch. And when the enemy is destroyed, they go down and they start to collect the plunder. Scripture says they start collecting clothing and equipment and lots of valuable assets. There was so much plunder. This was such a great victory for God's people. It took them three days and the Bible says they still couldn't collect it all. And then from there, after collecting and carrying what they could of the plunder, they go to celebrate together in the Valley of Baraka. The word Baraka, not to be confused with Obama, the word Baraka. Never been able to use that before. <laughs> Didn't work with George Bush. but uh, The word Baraka actually means praise, praise. They went on the fourth day, the Bible says, to the valley of praise. Because they discovered the battle was not theirs to fight. The battle is not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at. He makes a number of statements like this. First Corinthians chapter nine, beginning in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And there's the phrase I want to key in on. They go into strict training. They do not get a crown that will not last, but they do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, he says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. And I make it my slave, a picture here, a description of strict training. I make my body a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. We're over in First Timothy, chapter four, Paul says to this young preacher, he says, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself as opposed to just trying real hard. Go into a life of training. Um, I mentioned the first night that I'm reading this book this week. I'm a very slow reader, so I'm only a couple of pages ahead of where I was the other night when I read from it. But this, this is just good, good stuff. If I can find it. 
thought I marked it a little better than that, but maybe I didn't. Here we go. If we are to embody the character of Jesus, cultivating actions of love, patience, kindness, and peace, there are time-tested spiritual disciplines that, if entered into by the grace of God, can produce marked change. This is what Paul meant when he said, train yourself to be godly. This training is contrasted with the current WWJD, what would Jesus do approach to Christ likeness, which is essentially a trying model, trying versus training of Christ likeness. Vast numbers of Christians live with guilt, failure and futility as they practice daily this trying model of change, trying to be more loving, more forgiving, more patient or joyful, or trying not to be angry, lust-filled or greedy. Certainly, we have to want to be different. We want to lift up Christ, maybe you recognize that phrase, with our actions. But, Our direct efforts often fail, producing frustration and discouragement. Have you found that to be true? I certainly have. That is the futility of a trying approach to change. We must embrace a training approach to match our unique life situation. We can see clearly how effective this approach is when we look at many 12-step programs. Those who are successful working the program know clearly that their inner challenges and have deeply embraced individual and community disciplines which are practiced with clarity and urgency. Many who do this experience deep transformation, but it is not through passivity or just trying a little harder. It has been said that the 12 steps are not just helpful statements to tell you how to live, but intentional principles on how to stay alive. And I would suggest the same principles apply in the spiritual arena on how to stay alive. Now, the book also points out that whether you're talking about gifted musicians or athletes or business leaders... When you really look at their story, what makes them so successful is a disciplined, intentional approach of training. Take, for example, the physical realm. Um, When we were on our honeymoon, uh, my wife and I were amazed at how many channels we got on the TV in our honeymoon suite. This is our first morning. We woke up and Shri had the remote control and she was flipping through, I think, hundreds of channels. Uh, this was our first day, full day of being married, and so I didn't realize that the remote control really belongs to me, not to her. <laughs> well, we were young, didn't know any better, and so she's flipping through all of the channels until she finds like ESPN 13 or something, And they're broadcasting this bodybuilding contest from the beaches of Miami. And of all the stations to choose from, she stops at that program. Looking at these guys that, you know, have rippling biceps and triceps and fingernail steps. And they have (laughs) muscles on their breath. They're ridiculous. 
And Sri stops and looks at these guys, flexing their muscles and so on. And then she looks at me. <laughs> Did I say something funny there? It looks back at the TV and finally she says, I just don't think well-built men are very attractive. Which I think was a compliment to me, but I'm way too insecure to ask what she meant by that. I was just thinking this afternoon, this is a true story. Sunday night, uh, I stayed at a hotel in Reno because I got into Reno really late at night. And so then I drove over Monday morning to here. But uh, Monday morning, early... Uh, I was in the elevator and there were a couple of people in the elevator going from the fourth floor down to the first floor. And I was going out for a jog. And so I was wearing my shorts and a, uh, um, you know, like a T-shirt without what do you call tank top, a tank top. I was wearing a tank top. And this has never happened to me before. So I, I love Nevada and I love the people of Nevada because he looked at me and he says, well, you're obviously a bodybuilder. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, how could you tell? <laughs> Actually, I didn't do any of that. I laughed and I said, you're joking. He says, you're not. He says, well, because usually it's bodybuilders that wear the tank top deals. And I said, no, I'm going jogging. Oh, OK. But I I'm sure he really thought I was a bodybuilder. And I really, really liked that compliment and can't wait to tell that one to my wife. Um, well, here's what Mr. a former professional bodybuilder, Kent Maris, uh, Mr. Missouri, uh, once said. He says, the guys you see on TV and in the magazines that have that look, the bodybuilders, that look is what they do for a living. The maintenance of that look is what their entire lives are based on. It is a lifestyle. It is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We live in such a now society. Guys come in thinking that in three months or by swimsuit season, they can be ripped and hard. And that's very unrealistic. If you are serious about looking ripped and hard, you must enter into a life of training. That means you must arrange your whole life around those activities that will enable you to do by training what you cannot now do by trying. By way of hands, how many of you could bench press right now 200 pounds? There might be somebody. How many of you could bench press 200 pounds if you tried really, really hard? Trying doesn't make much of a difference, does it? Now, if we entered into a lifestyle of training with that as our goal three years from now, maybe some in here could. But not by just trying a little harder. Now, I look at mature followers of Christ. And I've been so blessed by the Biggers presentations this week. And I look at them and others like them that I just admire so much. And I wonder, you know, how how do you become a, a mature Christian like that? And inevitably, when you talk to people, it's all about this 
continuing journey with Christ, who does his work in us. And so the battle is not to try a little harder. It's to live in the presence of Christ through an intentional life of living out the spiritual disciplines that put us into his presence so that he can change us. Often the approach that people take in spiritual life is that you just try a little harder. It's a little bit like being plopped out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean amidst 10-foot swells with the assignment of keeping 50 beach balls submerged underwater at the same time. Now, if you're a really good swimmer, maybe you could keep a couple of them submerged with your feet and a couple more with your arms, and you could maybe get some of them under the surface for a while. But inevitably, it's just a recipe for feeling defeated and exhausted and frustrated every time. And see, a lot of times we approach spiritual life like this because we know deep down all the junk inside. And so we think if we can just at least appear holy and if I can keep this one under the surface and this one and pride and lust and gluttony, and if I can eat tree bark and tofu and do things that make me look really healthy and and spiritual, and if I can say really spiritual things, then maybe I'll look spiritual. And that is a recipe for feeling defeated and exhausted and frustrated every time. So what's the answer? Get out of the water and into the boat with Jesus and live in the presence of Jesus so that by his indwelling spirit, he begins to do that transforming work, that transforming miracle in you, changing from the inside out. Back when my youngest daughter was in the potty training stage, we had set up a reward system that gave her two Skittles for doing one thing in the bathroom and one Skittle for another, which is really more detail than you need. Uh, But I was watching her one afternoon because she hadn't earned any Skittles in the restroom. Uh, But she was just tall enough so that if she stood on a chair, she could reach up into the bowl in the pantry where we kept the bowl of Skittles. So I'm watching the great controversy raging in the little heart of this two-year-old because she knew she didn't deserve Skittles, but, you know, the spirit was willing to be good, but the flesh was really craving a sugar hit. So I watched with some interest as she dragged a chair across the kitchen floor She didn't realize I was standing there. She got on her tippy toes, got her fist into that bowl of Skittles. And just when she had her hand full of candies, I cleared my throat from the corner. Skittles everywhere. (laughs) Then the little munchkin had the nerve to approach me with open hands. What, Daddy, as if to say? I don't see any Skittles there. Why are you humming me? This doesn't look like a problem to me. I was amazed by that. One moment, she does not have the wherewithal to resist temptation. Can't do it. Just like that. She has the willpower of a saint. 
She was not tempted by those Skittles at all. What was the difference? It was the presence of the Father. And so it is. How do we grow into the likeness of Christ? We live in the presence of God. I love the way Thomas Kelly puts it. Don't grit your teeth and clench your fists and say, I will, I will. Relax. Take hands off. Submit yourself to God. Learn to live in the passive voice. I love that phrase. In fact, I try to pray it every morning. God, just today, help me to live in the passive voice. And let your life be willed through me. That's my prayer. He says, learn to live in the passive voice and let life be willed through you. A while ago, I got an email from a young woman I have never met. But with her permission, I share her letter. She wrote, Dear Mr. Hafner, I heard you speak in an early teen camp meeting at Florida in May of 1995. That's a long time ago. I still remember your message. You talked about Zacchaeus, and your conclusion was that people change just by being in the presence of Jesus. That was a profound truth that has shaped my spiritual life in significant ways ever since. I tend to drift toward legalism sometimes, trying to muster spiritual muscle to be good. But I always get brought back to the gracious truth that my only job is to stay in God's presence and he will change me. I love that letter for a couple of reasons. I'm very impressed with this young lady. Uh, first, because she can remember back to 1995. Uh, me, I have a photographic memory, but I can't figure out how to take off the lens cap, you know. Uh, I don't remember last year, let alone back 1995. Uh, but I'm also impressed because I think she hits it spot on. Really, this is the key to life with God. To just live moment by moment through the intentional practice of all of the spiritual disciplines. Solitude, prayer, Bible study, corporate worship, service. All of these activities that put us into His presence so that by His Spirit, He can change us. Father in heaven, thank you again tonight for speaking to us through your word. And now, God, just go with us. Help us to do each moment this evening with you. And tomorrow, an ordinary day with you, help us to live in your presence. And God, we are open to however you want to shape us. So transform us into your image. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.